millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was lovely to be joined uh, on the show by Christina there. Um, Yeah, it was. Not expecting that, and it was absolutely lovely to hear from her. So the book is probably available now by the time you're listening, and there will be a link there for you. We're joined this month in the... uh, in the webcam chat, we always have a guest, and this month is little Alexander the Meerkat. Um, and so he's helping us out with the show this month. And this month, I've also got someone here. I've got Isabella, the uh, our mascot from the Holy Wholesome Life. She's a, she's a vegan rabbit. Lovely. It's not very hard, but there she is. Do you know what's great? It's great having a visual segment on an audio podcast where, where the listeners can't see it, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes. So just the power of visualization. Just imagine that, guys. That's it. Um, PJ, why don't you tell us uh, something that you've read this month? All right, guys. I'm very excited. I haven't read too much, but that's all right. I've read one book, and sometimes one book is all you need, guys. It's the amazing, the incredible Pippi Longstocking. Now, have you ever read uh, the book or seen the films? I believe I might have seen the film when I was very little, um, but certainly nothing recently at all. When you were a little chappy. So anyway, guys, uh, a lot of people have seen this when they were small. They were turned into um, a series of kind of films or like TV series in 1969. But Pippi Longstocking is a book about Pippi Longstocking, who is a red-haired girl. She's nine years old, and it begins with her moving into a small tiny village in Sweden called Villa Villacula and she has a monkey her companion called Mr. Nielsen and she has a horse who's known as Lila Gubin in the film but doesn't have a name in the books I thought it was a good idea to give the horse a name so that was sad um, and she befriends the two children next to her so her neighbors who are called Tommy and Anika Zetegren but Pippi Longstock is not your usual girl. She is kind of an orphan. She says her um, her dad is the king of, of, of savages, that he used to be a pirate, but then they were separate at some point, and she lost her dad, but he's not dead. She's convinced about that. She knows that she's somewhere in the South Sea Island ruling the ruling this, this new tribe. And she always says her mother is an angel. So instead of saying her mother passed away, so she's a son of, ah, she's, right, she's right. the daughter of an angel and a pirate. And she's super rich because she's got a whole suitcase full of gold coins and what have you not in her huge house. She managed to buy this huge house. She managed to buy herself a horse. Uh, she's basically um, finding kind of an interesting sort of um, like literary device, I would say, because monetary issues or concern is eliminated straight away from this kind of like deus ex machina. It is a bit of a deus ex machina. She's, this girl is infinitely rich. That's it. There's mm-hmm. never she can just buy anything, and that's right, kind of right. like the story revolves around that. She can just buy like thousands of candies for kids and stuff like that. So, anyway, and she's super strong. She is the strongest person in the world, probably. She can she carries her horse around with one finger, and uh, she can do. She's kind of like this superhero, but she's a little girl, and it's not really your Marvel kind of superhero. It's more like just 
she's very she's quite discreet about it even though she's not really discreet if you know what i mean she's not saying like oh i can do this and that um but she's not discreet in the sense of she goes around like just shouting and she's she's all over the place really and what i love about the story is that the book itself doesn't is not really i wouldn't say it's like rich in plots i think pippi longsong in the first book i'm sorry the second one now but the first book at least it's not really strong about plot. It's more about like little segments of her life. And for me, it's always like uh, that I'm learning how to overcome fears, social, social issues, social blockages. And she always kind of attacks these taboos and breaks them. Basically it's, it's written in the forties and the second world war is not present. Although I always have it kind of in my background. So she did write it during the Second World War, Astrid Lindgren, who became famous with this book. Uh, but it's not there at all. She doesn't, it's not, it's not there, the Second World War. But anyway, it's more about her like tackling these issues and helping the vulnerable, helping kids, helping, like just, just helping these two kids beside her who are kind of a bit repressed, I think. They're a bit kind of like, they're, they're two kind of perfect kids who just behave themselves. And she kind of, Let's everything loose. She's a bit like the the id, and she's kind of, but in a positive sense, she's mm-hmm. trying to turn everything more natural. And I love that about the about the book. I love what she says. So she's always like, she's always saying the most ridiculous things, really. But behind that is food for thought. I would say, so it's mm-hmm. always food for thought, and it's been quite a controversy in Sweden, at least. Because most people thought that in the 40s, this was very, you know, you know, this is not very moral, is it? But outside the outside Sweden, it was seen more like uh, an inspiration for kids. And it started getting a big, a bigger influence that kids it can can also have can also have a say, also have power, also be strong because she is the strongest girl in the world. Although really, she's probably the strongest person in the world. Mm-hmm. And she's always meeting okay. these adults, always meeting these adults who have like conventions and ideas and think they know better. And then she always, she's always very Socratic, kind of, she always kind of, she often makes right. them see that they're they're wrong by her action, perhaps. So is there, you know, a good educational element to this then? I think there is, yeah, in a very unconventional level. But definitely, I think it's more like an inspiration for kids to like go outside the nature to know that they're strong, to know that kids can do anything, to know that kids can also form their own rules mm-hmm. and that their intuition is actually often better than, than the adults. Yeah. And how many of these books are there? So there are three, originally three uh, novels and then right. a, a big series of kind of like picture books and some spin-offs as well. And, I thought people... there, was, there was a lot, but there's three original core novels, right? Exactly, yeah. So... I'm, I'm just started the second one was called Pippi in the South Seas. So I'm looking forward to that. Can't tell you too much about it. But essentially that, guys, it's, it's, I've been reading this very slowly before going to bed, just one chapter at a time. And it's just a bit of a, an inspiration. Um, just like Momo from Michael Ende, which I talked about mm-hmm. two months ago. And it's a great inspirational book for you to learn about your inner child and for your kids to learn. And it's beautifully written as well. I, I think it's great. Now, I think the, the plot is, there's not too much plot. So I'm not criticizing, but it's not really a plot heavy book. It's more like those segments. Well, I didn't think it was going to be very plot heavy, to be fair. 
no, it's not really plot heavy. Now, the movies actually make a better job, I feel like. They kind of feel more plot-based. And the movies are really good because they really take it slowly. So, like, each movie is, like, just kind of, like, sometimes it's just a chapter from the book. And I loved the movies when I was a kid. Mm. So that's that's what made me want to read this book now. And I, I really recommend it. Uh, okay. I, I'll maybe check it out because I, I I only have one vague recollection of maybe having seen a bit of one of the movies once, you know, 25 years ago and that's the only kind of recollection i have so it's totally worth it and it's just it's just kind of required reading when you're a kid and required reading when you're an adult to find the inner child again and to know like to not take things too seriously okay good stuff really recommend it guys well my next book um because i just thought you know what do we need what follows perfectly from from pippi longstocking um it's Xenophon's Anabasis, also known as the March Up Country. Um, so similar kind of reading, just for the children, right? You oh know? yeah, just for children. Exactly. So <laughs> this is so you you know do you know Xenophon? No, no, then um, I've right. only heard of him. So tell me about Xenophon is um, runner up twice. So he's he wrote Socratic dialogues, but he's not mm-hmm. as good as Plato, mm-hmm. and he wrote a great history, but he's not as good as Thucydides. So, yeah, so he was smart. just, you know, trying to, to, to do the things, but just wasn't, he was never the number one guy, you know, Watch not out. for the philosophy, not for the history. Um, but still, still so, people remember him after 2,500 years. But he's, the... he's still remembered, you know, a couple millennia later. So look, <laughs> he's, he's doing all right, you know. But what we have here is, it's a short book. I mean, I, I read in two days, it's 150 pages or something. Uh, this isn't his famous history of our times, the, the Hellenica. This is the Anabasis. So this is the story of um, his army in Persia. So Xenophon goes along as the world's first war correspondent. And what happens is this Persian prince, uh, Cyrus, wants to usurp his brother's throne. Now, the brothers started the fight, so that's, that, you know, whatever. So uh, 10,000 Greeks go with him and they say, we're going to help you get to the throne. They're mercenaries, essentially. Hmm. They're on loan, you know. And, of course, Cyrus dies very early on, and now we've got 10,000 Greeks just in Persia saying, what well, well, the hell do we do now? And they sort of beg with the king, well, we were, yes, we were going to take over your throne, but only because we got paid. So do you want to let us go free? And then there's some skirmishes and whatever. Look, it's kind of a boring book because they spend, it's just them retreating. And okay, it takes them... It takes them a long, long time to retreat. And I don't really know why it took them that long, but... It's still fascinating that you got a documentary of that 2,500 years ago. And does it does it give some insight to the society of that time? Honestly, not really, because we, it's mostly focusing just on the army. So, yes, oh. we, we learn a little bit about army formations and army tactics and, you know... But we don't really see a lot about society because this isn't that really a, a social history. It is just the history of one military campaign, and that's it, you know, okay, okay. Um, one failed military campaign. Um, and, you know, it took them like a few years to get home. Now, what I don't like <laughs> is the translation. It uses things wow. like men at arms instead of hoplites and, you know, boats at arms instead of triremes. So it assumes no prior knowledge of Greek history. Okay, okay. Um, that but Xenophon decided, well, if I can't be the best historian and I can't be the best philosopher, I'm going to be the best leader. So he writes himself in as the leader of the army. Now, he was there and maybe he became the leader at some point, but he refers to himself in the third person. It's always, and then an Athenian called Xenophon, you know, appeared on the scene. 
And he describes himself. It's always, you know, at the start, why is he not the leader? They all had a big, big talk. And Zenith said, like, no, guys, I don't want to be your leader. Pick someone else, you know. So they pick someone else. And then eventually, when that doesn't work out, they have to pick Xenophon in the end, you know. And he really writes himself into a very, very strong corner. And he says things like, you know, before I came here, I, I ran this by Socrates and he was on board with this mission. So, like, you gotta got to get that so, reference in there. He's, he's a bit of a Steven Seagal. A kind of a he's a bit of a Steven Seagal. He is kind of like writing really himself is. into the plot and making it seem like it wasn't really him. <laughs> I mean, and he gives himself these set speeches. Um, so they're all complaining um, about health and safety, and they're running away because they're dying of frostbites, lying up, sleeping in the cold for like a year on end, and it's horrible conditions. They're starving, and and Xenophon comes by. Xenophon cut him short. Man, I am amazed at you. You have eyes to see, but understand not. You have ears to hear, but remember not. And he just gives himself these big, you know, dramatic, um, <laughs> these big dramatic speeches. Or there's a bit where they okay. say, it isn't fair, Xenophon. You ride on a horse. I'm tired out carrying this shield. Xenophon, hearing this, jumps off the horse, pushes the man onto the horse in his place, takes the shield and goes as fast as he could with the shield. Look sharp, he calls to the front. So he's just doing these dramatic things, you know. <laughs> You're complaining that I'm the leader on the horse? Here, you take the horse then. And of course, then the guy's like, oh, I can't manage on the horse and Xenophon has to take it back again, you know. But it's it's just these these bits where he makes himself very, very gallant and very... Right. It's very quite funny, actually. It's very much a Steven Seagal for you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And he led them like Moses. Like, it took 40 years to get from a, through one desert. Like, you you know the, the area from Persia to Greece it took them like several years to get through it like three years or something like you know but <laughs> they travel 1,500 miles but the actual distance is half that so I don't know what they were doing like going around in circles or something just, just you know just you know just enjoying the landscape right <laughs> I guess um no, before I get so on to my last but oh go yeah, ahead go ahead no I'm just saying it doesn't sound very historically accurate it just sounds like a you know, like, you know, it's taking some liberties to make it sound more epic. I think more, it's of... more or less historically accurate, but you just have to factor in a little pinch of the old ego, you know, a little pinch of Xenophon <laughs> in with it. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, the last book I read is one that you might know, but before I get to it, I'll just very, very quickly say, um, last month we also covered an Agatha Christie book with our friend Liam, Secondhand Bookman, and that was available on patreon.com slash booksboys. We did an Agatha Christie, The Mystery of the Blue Train. We generally do one most months. Um, and at the moment, we're also both reading some more Shakespeare because we're going to do some more Playboys. So guys, if you want all our extra shows, they're all on patreon.com slash booksboys. You've got Shakespeare's, you've got my musician interviews from The Vault, you've got Caper Captains, Poetry Pals, Film Fellows. There's a lot of stuff on there and you can you can definitely get it for $5, uh, $3 a month. So it's, it's it, you're robbing us essentially Guys, we're just we're, we're basically just handing it to you on 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 the golden platter so we are we really are and the other thing you can do is while you're on booksboys.com if you scroll down there's links to all our other pro- projects like pj's holy wholesome life with with, mm-hmm. with lucia for example you'll also get links to our music and various other things and um, so you can if you want more of us and why wouldn't you people are emailing me every day i'm getting notes on pigeon carrier telegrams sos everything <laughs> we want more we need more of you guys. So there's links right, to a lot of other stuff on booksboys.com. Guys, the last book I read was does. called The Devils by one Dostoevsky. The, you know, you'll know Dostoevsky. He's most famous for inspiring the Dostoev teddy. Um, he is very famous for that. But this, my, my copy is called The Devils. It's usually called The Possessed. 
and or occasionally as, the demons. It's known as Biesi in Russian. If you speak Baruski, it's Biesi, but it's hard to translate because it means beasts, actually, or it means demons, or it means devils. I actually started reading this, Dean. I actually had to stop, though. So like, you go ahead and explain if you like it or not. I'll also briefly tell why I had to stop. Okay. Well, I did yeah, like well, it. Oh, guys, just so you know, this is Crime and Punishment, guys. So, a lot more famous for Crime yeah. and Punishment, isn't he? This is the guy who did Crime and Punishment, um, which, to be fair, I would recommend. I think it's a real classic. Yeah. This one, a little bit less. Now, it actually is one of the few books that I d- didn't like it so much at the start, but it won me over as it went along. Yeah. Um, because, his, his, let's be honest, Dostoevsky's writing style is a little bit erratic. Um, mm. You know, it's not just nice, flowing narrative. Sometimes it's a bit all over the place, even in Crime and Punishment. But that's okay because the guy's meant to be going crazy. But in this book, he's not. But it's still all over the place. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm struggling to focus. And you always think that all the characters know more than you do. But they're not telling you what they know. And you kind of, you're playing catch up the whole book. And you're thinking like, I just, what's the plot? What's happening sometimes? You know, it's, it's not very orderly. But it was enjoyable. And it did get a bit more together by, by the end of it. Um, I am overall disappointed. There's one guy, Mr. Mr. Verkovensky, and he's an old, they call him a professor and a scholar and a learned man. And it sort of comes about later that he taught a couple of classes and then dropped out and never really did anything. But they say that he's a writer and he's always writing something, but, you know, nobody ever sees what he's written. And he's, you know, they think, well, he can give speeches and talks, but then they realize he hasn't actually given one in 20 years. And, you know, there's a lot of, they, they have a lot of ideas of what this man can do, but, He's a kind of an, an adult child. He doesn't really do anything, you know. He just lives lives off Mrs. Stravogan and just lives off her for 20 to 25 years. And she pays all his bills and he writes her letters from the same house, letters, multiple letters every day. And she keeps yeah, I remember them all. That. And <laughs> I loved him. And I thought this is going to be a lovely little book. And there's a romance with them and it's all brilliant. And no, it does not go that way at all. They fall out. Basically what happened is he has a son, uh, Peter, that he hasn't seen in a decade. And when Peter finally appears in the book, he doesn't recognize him. And he's thinking, who's this chap that's come into the room? And then all of a sudden he's, Peter, my boy, is that you? Like, yes, it is me, dad. And Peter just says, oh, there's no time for sentiment now. You've given me no sentiment for the last decade. So don't, don't get all worked up now. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and me- meanwhile, the guy, the dad has been dwindling away the son's property as well as Mrs. Stravogan's. All he knows how to do is, you know, live a merry life and gamble at cards and, and not take into consideration how much of everyone else's money he's wasting, mm. you know, but whilst having the reputation for being a very learned man. Um, and at the same time, Mrs. Travogan's son, Nicholas Travogan, also appear, reappears on the scenes. The two lads actually come in together and no one's really seen either of them for a few years. They've been, they've been away doing things and now they come back. Um, and then the book takes a weird turn because they're both quite sinister and you don't really like either of them. And you think they're in league together and then later you figure out that maybe they're not in league and maybe one's worse than the other, but Mm. neither of them are very likable chaps. And the son, basically, (laughs) Mr. Verkovensky's son designs some plans to essentially make his dad a fool and and lose him his cushy little position. Um, But at the same time, he has some plans for Stravogan's son to, to involve him in some stuff and he's ensnaring other people and stuff. And he's just not a very nice person. He's always up to something. Um, and one of the big backdrops of this book is we're essentially in, in a period of Russia where, you know, we've got hardship on the peasants and mm-hmm. revolt is starting to happen. But these guys aren't really communists. They're, they're forming little groups, 
little groups of five. Um, Peter oh. is always forming these groups of five and he's telling them, you're not the only one. There's thousands more, but you'll never get any proof of that. Do what so, I tell yeah. you or I'll kill you. It was published in 1873. So it's not, communism is not yet like, it's kind no. of out there. It's, it's out there, but like it's not really become ingrained into. Exactly. I would say that really the guy is more of a nihilist, to be honest. Mm, totally. Um, and, you know, and the, the book's rife with, with murder and with just cruel treatment of people and all this kind of thing. And there's this one, there's this one little um, lame girl. So kind of with a bad leg and she's kind of shunned a little bit. And it turns out that Nicholas married her and no one knows, but he's been giving them money. And then you might think that's gallant, but then, well, no one knows that he's married to her. And then they think that he's doing it to be, make fun of her. And then, then no one really knows. There's a lot of moral ambiguity, a lot of gray areas. And, with Nicholas, I swear, I never really figured out if he's good or bad. The whole book. Okay, that, I think that's he's just in between. You know, I think he does a mixture of good and bad things. You know, very dusty. Whereas, kind of like it having, is, yeah, kind of. You know, it's it's like Nietzsche. Kind of, you don't know beyond good and bad. Kind of, you make your own interpretation. Depends on the context. If you think it's good or bad. Yeah. Whereas Peter, I think, genuinely is bad. Um, but but then what happens is. Mrs. Travogan, I think she either realizes, doesn't realize, or just doesn't care that for 20 years, Mr. verkovensky has been in love with her. So eventually she says, you're going to marry this other girl. It's her niece or her ward or whatever. Marry her. And he says, well, does she even like me? Like, why are you asking me questions like that? You don't need to know about that. How dare you question me? Just marry her. And then says to the girl, you're going to marry Mr. verkovensky because it'll make me happy. So she's not even tell. you know, there's no pretense that they like each other. It's okay. just, you're both doing what you're told. And when he doesn't want to do it, and then he works up these great speeches where I'm a slave and I'm a prisoner. And and then his son deliberately reads that to Mrs. Stravogan, who's paid his expenses for 20 years. And it's just like, well, if you're so much of a prisoner, I would request you to do me one kind favor, sir, and never show your face here again. So she oh kicks God. him out. And then, you know, he... I wanted the whole book to be about him and it's not. There's a lot of political stuff. Then there's some religious philosophy and, you know, just the usual and it kind of goes on and on a bit sometimes. Just like Tolstoy, right? They they all get into like (laughs) mysticism and more than religion. And they're both both loquacious, aren't they? They're both uh, very wordy. That's it. They they are a bit. Um, You know, but it is a nice one. It's a fun read. There's betrayal and there's murders and there's things... There's romantic scenes as well. Mr. Verkovensky eventually says, you know, I'm going to become a pilgrim. I'm going to leave. And off he goes. He takes no carriage. He goes out in the rain, but with an umbrella. And he just, you know, I'm just going to wander the earth. And there's a lot of this, you know, kind of uh, romanticism in it. And it's so weird because they say, like, he's a relic. He's a figure of the past. Everyone else there is actually very pragmatic. They're nihilists. They're trying to overthrow governments. They're doing, like, real practical stuff. And then this one guy is like a an ultra romanticist that it doesn't really fit. And it eventually comes out when, you know, that he's kind of a fool. And for years, they've all thought that he was, he was greatly respected and they kind of realize, no, he's not. And he gives a big speech and he wins some of them over, but it's not great. But the guy, the guy, Peter, he deliberately plays with people. There's a governor, Mr. Uh, Lemp, and he plays with him and he plays with everyone. And, you know, you'll lend him your manuscript to read. And then he'll, you'll, you'll see him a week later. Where's my manuscript? What manuscript? 
I know nothing about it. And he's like, you, what have you done with my manuscript? I, I gave you my novel to read. He's like, I don't remember that. Maybe I dropped it in the street. I don't know. You know, and he's doing this deliberately just to, to annoy people, to, to have everyone on tenterhooks around him, walking on eggshells, and everyone is afraid of him. And it's funny when they do these communist meetings where everyone yeah. thinks they're so important, but they don't really do anything, you know, mm-hmm. and they get together in their groups and no one does anything. And no one knows who's in the greeting and who's not in the meeting. And they take a big, big vote on, are we going to have a meeting? And after half an hour, they vote, oh, yes, let's have a meeting. What's the meeting about? And then they all look at Stravogin and and Verkovensky like, guys. And they're like, oh, we don't know. We we don't know anything about it. (laughs) And then they're just like, well, meeting adjourned, I guess. Like, they they don't have anything to talk about. They're all just waiting for the others. And it's more like a, I think it's more like a criticism uh, against nihilism. So it's not that just, yes, he was a nihilist. Is kind of like he's saying. Oh no! That, like the the nihilists do not get painted in a good light. You know, yeah, totally right. It's not. It's not as if he's written a pamphlet sort of in favor of of nihilism or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not that. And there's this one girl. She's she's a side character, but she's the ultimate. I'm going to fight for the youth and the young women. And she won't have anything from anyone. And she bumps into an uncle she's not seen in years and years. And she says, hold your tongue, please. And don't dare speak to me in so familiar a tone with your disgusting comparisons. I've never seen you before in my life. And he says, I used to carry you in my arms when you were a baby. And what do I care if you carried me? I didn't ask you to carry me in your arms, you know. And she's just, she's having none of it, you know. Oh, that's crazy. So there's a little bit of vaguely humorous stuff in there as well. But it's, uh, it's quite heavy at times, to be honest, you know. Okay, okay. But I do recommend it. I, I do think it was an enjoyable one. I thought it was heavy going. That's why I stopped it, to be honest. And that's just that's just it, guys. I, I thought it was very uh, loquacious and I wasn't enjoying it like I, I, I did with his other books. Yeah. So that's the writing style gets less erratic as it goes on. If That was okay. my, my fear, but I don't know. Look, before we get to our recommendations, I'm going to take two minutes. I'm going to very, very quickly tell you about Lies by T.M. Logan. It's our guilty pleasure book of the of the month. Um, what if your whole life was based on lies? So if you ever get fed up reading Dostoevsky and Xenophon's Anabasis, and you just want to read something light, but you've lost your copy of Pippi Longstocking, um, we've, got, we've got Lies. I wouldn't say it's light. I would just say it's easy. You know, it's a page turner. It's a thriller. Um, so this guy and his little son are out for a drive and all of a sudden they see mummy over there talking to our friend but mummy lied about where she was going to be and then are they having an affair and all of a sudden now the friend is there's been an accident and now now he drives the son has a medical emergency so the dad leaves but the friend's lying on the ground after this accident potentially dying and he's like well like do i save my friend or do i save my son well i'm just going to go save my son Come back later for the friend. The friend's gone. Now he doesn't know if he's alive. Is he dead? Has he contributed to his death? And then obviously the wife's having an affair and there's all this stuff. And basically you can't trust anyone you know. He's getting hacked on social media. Everything goes crazy and his whole life is based on lies. So you're just, you're, it's a page turner. It's about 400 pages, but you can do it in two days. You're just, what the heck's going to happen next? And of course, some of it's predictable. Look, these aren't high literature, but they're really enjoyable types of books. And then at the end, it's just a mad plot twist just for the hell of it, like, you know, because oh, cool. why not? You know, just why not just twist everything to oblivion, you know, but it's a nice one. It's a fun one. Um, good, it's, always, it's always it's always good to to have a, a guilty pleasure from time to time when you're, li- you know, you're just listening to, to too much classical music and you just want to put, you know, Kesha on uh, just, for, for five minutes, you know, <laughs> that's it. Exactly. That's it. 
Uh, PJ, do you have a recommendation for us this month? Okay, so what I recommend for the summer, which I always read in the summer, is I always read a Philip K. Dick book. Now, Philip K. Dick is known as the Shakespeare of science fiction. He did write Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep, which was turned into Blade Oh, yes. Blade yes. Runner, yes. Which was turned into Blade Runner. Now, a lot of films have been made based on his books, such as Total Recall, for example, uh, Minority Report, um, uh, what else? Um, Scanner Darkly. Now, and I think he's got a very interesting uh, point of view because he's a schizo- he was schizophrenic. And his science fiction is very different than most others. So it's very schizophrenia-based. So you're looking at uh, science fiction through a split, splitted view. And I find they're often very disturbing, but they're really insightful. So his books have been very prophetic and um, quite, quite amazing, I find. But mm-hmm. Do Androids Dream of Legacy Sheep is a great book. I really like that one. Uh, but the one that I recommend is a far lesser known book. Uh, this book is called Martian Time Slip, which came earlier in 1964. And it's a really good book. It's about um, people f- forming a colony in Mars. They kind of like it's de-romanticizing everything. So it's kind of everything's messed up. Everything's too dry. And it's just about this guy who's suffering from schizophrenia. And he's also connecting with the Martian uh, tribes so there's a martian tribe they're based they look like uh, the north american tribes they're kind of the same thing in the sense of um they're, they're based on that okay. and it's about him dealing with schizophrenia and about these slightly supernatural powers these tribes have and what i think is great about this book is that it's a very really apart from the tribes and the magical powers it's quite a realistic depiction, I think, of what mm-hmm. a Martian settlement would be like, which I think would not be very romantic after a while. It's just you're dealing with dryness and heat and you can't really plant anything. Everyone's kind of poor. Everyone's living in kind of like this, this oh, like these little, these awkward little houses in the middle of nowhere. And yeah, for some reason, I really enjoy reading this book, especially in the summer, because where I live, it's very dry and there's a lot of heat. So I really relate to it. And I do find the perspective absolutely unique from Philip Kiddick, even if you don't okay. like science fiction. He is a Shakespeare science fiction for a reason. So that's what I recommend. What about you, think? Okay. Well, I was going to take the easy road and just recommend Crime and Punishment. Um, yeah. But I was in danger of getting sacked for doing that. You know, I think that's... Alfred gave me very stern looks. So I've got two two recommendations. Um, they're both gothic short stories. Um, oh. So if you if you like Northanger Abbey, you might be interested. Uh, Luella Miller and the Yellow Wallpaper. I first read both of these when I was uh, 13, I guess, um, in a collection. Luella Miller is relevant um, because just like Lady Bertram, she doesn't know how to make the tea. Oh Lord! So, so, so Luella Miller essentially drives her servants to the grave by expecting them to 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 do everything for her, just to lift and lay her on her every whim. And she's not—I don't think she's meant to be necessarily a, a cruel person intentionally, um, or maybe I misremember. Maybe she is, but she effectively just you know expects people to do everything. And there is a bit where they say, "Make your own damn coffee," and she says, "I don't know that I can make the coffee," you know. <laughs> Someone's got to do it for me, you know, and and that's it. That's that's 
well, that's her entire story. These are just you know short stories. There's not a lot to them, um, but that's her. She just she's the she drives you to death by overworking you as a servant, basically. And then the yellow wallpaper is a curious one. I'd love to reread this because again, it's been years since I've read these. But hmm. yellow wallpaper is an interesting tale of of insanity. So it's going into a room in this. Mm-hmm. I think they buy a new house or something, and they see this yellow wallpaper. And they're just intrigued with the with the the patterns and the appearance of the wallpaper. Okay. And over time, they start seeing more things in it, and they're like talking, and they're just getting lost in the wallpaper, and their whole world becomes this wallpaper to the point where they go completely insane. Like they're living in the wallpaper essentially. They just go completely insane. But it's very slow. It's a slow build. And I remember the first time I was told about The Shining. I watched the film and I tried to read the book, and I, I gave up on it, but. I was told, oh, it's great. You're going to see someone go insane. And then it happens in the movie. It happens very, very quickly. And I was like, this is garbage. Because in the yellow wallpaper, I saw a really brilliantly done slow burn of someone slowly going insane little by little. And of course, no one had heard of the yellow wallpaper because they were watching Stephen King's The Shining. But um, I always loved this, uh, you know, since I was 13. It's, it's, a, it's a really good... Um, it's a really nice story. So those are my two wow, uh, gothic short one. story recommendations. Especially love to read the uh, yellow lo- uh, wallpaper. Wow! I hope it's as good as I remember. But those are those are my two recommendations. Um, PJ, why don't you tell us all which Shakespeare we're reading for this month's Playboys? Uh, guys, we're going to be reading three classic Shakespeare's. We're going to be reading All Do About Nothing. Also, Othello or Othello, depending which pronunciation you like. And we're also going to be reviewing the classic, the controversial, mm-hmm. the one and only, The Taming of the Shrew. You'll be pleased to know, PJ, when I read this years ago, I thought it was the best one. I just reread it, and oh. uh, no, I was wrong. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But look, we'll get into that on another show, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. So guys, you can you can get all of those reviews as well, patreon.com slash booksboys, uh, all of our, our extra shows. Um, because there's so much on there. PJ, did you remember that this month we were gonna end with the night hunter? Oh yes. Creepy crawly night hunter. Now if you go on Spotify or Amazon or Apple Music, whatever you use, and you put in the Dean or PJ Burke, you'll mm. find some of our songs. Um this one's not on there. Um, so you've got to listen to the end of the episode. Um, this is one of my favorite songs. You, you need to get this one released, actually. It's one of my favorite songs that you've ever done. Um, uh, can you tell me why I might have uh, some like particular affection for this one? Oh, indeed, Dean. I did write this song about five years ago, guys, with Dean in mind. So I thought, you know, he's, he's quite a unique personality. And he is very much obsessed with this romantic view of, of life. And he does love Dracula and this kind of... Yeah, it's a kind of mm-hmm. romantic <laughs> predator figure. You're not a predator, but you do love this kind of <laughs> idea of kind of like Dracula. And you've dressed up as Dracula. So I thought, okay, well, why not have a song about him being Dracula in um, in Northern Ireland? So it's it's him. It's me kind of imagining what Dean is like, putting on a harpsichord sound and kind of like just, just putting that into sound, him kind of going around Northern Ireland with his, with his fangs and his like, you know, 19th century kind of kind of outfit here. And so that's that's the idea, guys. And that's why I created the song. That's it. And you see the vampire fly up to the pretty angel. Guys, we're going to take you out with that song in a moment. 
Uh, if you want to get in touch, that's booksboys at hotmail.com. Tell us what you've been reading. We could end up having you on the show or sending you a mystery book prize. And um, so those are those are things that we'd really like to hear from you uh, as well. And Alfred's going to get out his DJ kit and spin that record. And meanwhile, we'll be back in about a month. Awesome, guys. Take it easy. See ya. Boys was presented by The Dean and PJ Burke in association with Thaddeus Penguin Productions. Ah. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, WitheringMedicaments.gov. If you would like to get in touch, you can email us at booksboys at hotmail.com or visit us at booksboys.com. The intro uses Driving in the 70s, 
from the Upside Tracks and Garage Bands EP by Trap Door. And the outro uses Dog's Light by Bravo Max from the album of the same name. All music used is either pod safe or used with permission. If you'd like to support the show, click on the Amazon or Audible referral links of booksboys.com or go to patreon.com slash booksboys and get all of the Bufanda Boys bonus shows. Thank you kindly for listening to us. Please tell your friends and come back next time for another episode of Books Boys. Read some books! Oh, actually, I have to delete that. Um, uh, the, his name is not Philip K. Dix. <laughs> his name is, is his name is Dick though, but um, right, not Dix. Okay. Okay, man. <laughs> I'll, I'll edit this. Oh god. <laughs>